Testament, and, and walking through a book is usually fairly easy to do. So this is something we've committed to. At the beginning of every, every year, we, we, we pick a, a book of the Bible, and we kind of use walk through that book throughout the whole rest of the year. And so this year, we decided to go through Genesis. And there's some challenges with that that we're going to get into. But if, if this is your first time here, um, we want to... We want to teach the Bible. Ultimately, we want, to, we want to introduce you to Jesus and help you fall in love with Him through His Word. And so, each night when we get up here, there's going to be two sections. There's going to be a first part, then a half time, and then a, a, second, a second half, where someone during the first part is going to kind of break down the text and, and help you see kind of what this means, and then we'll take a little break, and then someone will get up and kind of talk about something more applicational or more theological reflect to reflect on, and then uh, that's how we walk through a book. And so tonight, we're actually not even going to really get into the first verse of Genesis. We're just going to we're going to talk about um, why Genesis and what Genesis is. And so my my part is is really to answer two questions: is what is this book that we're about to study, and then what um, is the purpose of Genesis? Those are the two questions I'm going to be I'm going to be answering. Um, you can, uh, if you take notes, that's great. If you if you're here and did not, or if you weren't here a couple weeks ago when we passed out journals, we have journals for you, and uh, we'd love to give you one. Maybe at the halftime, um, you can grab a journal. We'll have somebody walking around with those, but um, we'd love for you to take notes. But basically, the Bible. What is this? What is this thing that we're going to study, and and how do we understand it? How do we read it? How do we apply it to our life? So, here's the thing. The Bible is two things. The Bible is two things. Um, the first one is something that you can't control. You can't manipulate. Um, in fact, the only way for you to understand it is if God reveals it to you. It's, it's, it's purely just gift. So it's nothing you can earn or, or manipulate or control. The second thing is actually something that requires a lot of effort from you, a lot of work from you. It's, 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 it's hard to discern, actually. So the first one is that the Bible is spiritual. The Bible is a spiritual book. Um, it was, we believe it was written over a period of 1,500 years to dozens of, by dozens of authors on multiple continents and multiple countries all with, with one unifying purpose, and that's to point to Jesus. So how could that happen? How could something that was written, by, written over 1,500 years all be telling the same story, being unison, be, have um, complete autonomy and, 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 and unity in, in its purpose? It's because we believe it's spiritual. We believe this book is accurately, divinely, and with great authority teaches us about God and teaches us about His purpose for creation and, and therefore how you and I can live the life that we are created to live. We believe that in, in its original form, like it's an original language, this, was, this, this is God's word to us, divinely inspired. It's a spiritual book. And that's not something that you can just work really hard to understand. It's, it's, it's a gift when God's, God's Spirit opens your eyes to His Word, when he, when he helps you see things that you maybe you hadn't seen before, it's gift. 
Hebrews um, Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So we believe it's inspired by God to, to pierce your heart and change your life. Only, only God could use a book like this um, to do this. It's a spiritual book. The second thing is, it's historical. Uh, every author who, who wrote in this book wrote to a real audience with, um, with real purposes in mind, dealing with real circumstances. And the only way um, to understand it is if you try to put yourself in the mind of somebody who lived 2,000 or 3,000 or 3,500 years ago. And, and, and we, don't, we don't talk enough about how difficult that is to try to understand what somebody was thinking 3,000 years ago or 3,500 years ago. And, and, and how do we understand a culture? How do we understand a mindset and, and what they valued way back then? So those, those kinds of things are difficult. There's a big distance between us and them that we have to overcome because the book, it's a historical book. It's, um, and the only way to understand it is to try and understand it on its terms, is to come to the Bible and to say, okay, I, I'm not going to bring to the Bible what I think it should say or what I think it means, but I'm going to let it tell me what it says and what it means. So this, this is not easy. So I want you to picture... Uh, I want you to try, try to imagine life 300 years ago, okay? 300 years ago, we didn't, the country, we didn't have a, we weren't a country, right? 1776, that happens, early 1700s. And, um, and what was life like then? Okay, here, I'm talking about here in America. What was life like then? Quite a bit different than now. Think about the way people thought and the way, what they valued and how they, how they went about life. Now, sh- show this picture this picture is supposedly the arrival of William Penn. Okay, I don't know much about William Penn other than Pennsylvania, Penn State. I think this guy's related. Um, so he may have been a terrible guy. Forgive me if he was. But I like this picture because this looks like a completely different world to me. And, th- and these people are most likely speaking English. So you could probably understand what they're saying. But imagine if you transported back to that time and, and you just showed up there and you're like, do you think you could just fit right in and just converse with these people and just walk alongside them and understand what they're doing and why they're doing it? Would they understand you? Chances are no. Okay, so now, with this in mind, think 2,000 years ago on a different co- continent in, in, you know, Asia somewhere and speaking a different language 2,000 years ago. That's when Paul and the, and the other New Testament writers were writing. Think 3,000 years ago when David was writing. Think 3,500 years ago when Moses was writing. And, and you start to get into thousands of years. We're, that's, this, is, this seems like ages away, eons away from us, and, and this is only 300 years. And, and then you begin to see, wow, this is difficult. So these two factors, the fact that it's spiritual... Um, that it's something only God can reveal, uh, that it's historical, there's a lot to overcome, makes this book difficult sometimes to understand. Then you add to the fact that there's people like us, maybe like me, um, 
who didn't really like to read. Maybe you're not much of a reader. And you're like, ah, I don't really like to read. And the only way to know God is to read. I'm not much of a reader. See, when I was in high school, I hated to read. Hated to read. I can, I can count. Okay, I'm going to admit some things I've never admitted in public before tonight. Um, one of which is, I can count on one hand the number of books I read from elementary through high school. Actually, it's this, four, um, from cover to cover. See, whenever I had a book report in high school, I would just read the back cover, read the first sentence of every paragraph-ish, get a feel for it, and just BS my way through. And I didn't care what I got, because I didn't like school, didn't, didn't care. C's were fine with me. C's, maybe B's. B's was like, oh, that's awesome, a B. It's great. I passed, and I got a B. I didn't care about school. All I cared about was, was baseball. Then my senior year happened, two things that, that kind of rocked my world. One, my, my dreams of playing baseball in college and beyond um, ended about halfway through my senior year. That's all I'd ever thought about from the time I was a little kid was playing baseball professionally. That's all I ever thought about. I like, woke up to reality my senior year and realized that's not going to happen. And then I took my ACT. See, I hadn't tried in school because I didn't care about school. And all of a sudden, I realized, wow, I probably, probably need to think about what, I'm gonna, what else I'm going to do. Took my ACT, and I got an 18. Lowest, like, so, like, my wife is the only person that knows that, and now all of you know that. My kids don't even know that. Um, and I think the reason I don't ever want to, I don't like talking about it is because it embarrassed me. Because I really want you guys to think I'm an intelligent person. Um, but that, that was is evidence to me of someone who just didn't care and didn't try in high school. So that was me. Graduated my senior year with no, no plan, no real purpose, and I just went into, went into junior college, lived at home, worked full-time, went to junior college. My first year, I, just, I was lost. My first year of college, just lost in life. And then, and then the summer in between my freshman and sophomore year, I... Through a, through a friend slash mentor, um, was kind of got back into church and decided, okay, God, you created me for a purpose. I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing, so maybe I'll just, I'll just ask you. I'll just seek what you have for me. So I did. And he told me to give, to give my life up and to give it to Jesus. And so I did. And it changed everything. And all of a sudden, I like wanted to read this thing. I wanted to read the Bible. And I wanted to understand who Jesus was. And I wanted to know more about what it meant to, to live for Him, yet I didn't have the habits or the disciplines to really do that. And every time I'd read the Bible, I'd read it, I'd be like, okay, what does that mean? I don't know. And I'd go to church and some preacher would tell me what it means and I'd go, okay. I mean, he's the expert, so I guess that's what it means. And then about two years into this, I, I, about a, after a year and a half of, well, actually about six months after I gave my life to Christ, I, I ended up at Ozark Christian College, um, and, I, and about a year later, I remember sitting in chapel, uh, and I remember someone preaching, in this nagging question, this question I could not escape, this question that haunted me, was, how, do, how does he know he's right? Like, how does he know what this means? And why should I trust his interpretation of what he's saying this is? Because like, aren't we just guessing here? Is there, is there any way to really know what this means? Anybody else have this question? Like you're sitting around, you're reading, you're like, I, I, 
I mean, I think it means this, but I don't know if that's what it means. You've never really had any sort of process to walk through it. Well, that, that led me to take this class called Principles of Interpretation. Best class I ever took in college. It was taught by this really loud, obnoxious Canadian named Jim Johnson. Uh, he was a professor at our college. If you don't know, he's the, he's the, the lead minister at, at Sunnybrook right now. Um, and it was his first year to teach. And, and so, but it was like, I took that class and it, it was like someone was giving water to someone dying of thirst because finally someone was helping me understand how to read this thing that I can actually take, I can actually read it and understand it and apply it. Like there's, there's, a, way, there's a process to walk through that would help me understand what's going on. And I don't have to rely on somebody else to teach me who, who God is. Like, I can do that. And so, uh, Drew and, and, and I and a few other of the ministers at Sunnybrook got together and we decided to put, take that semester-long class and put it into a postcard that we gave to you right here. Um, because we believe that one of the best gifts that we can give you is not just to teach you about Jesus and, and to teach you how to follow Him, um, but one of the best gifts we can give you in college is to teach you how to, to read, understand, and apply this Bible so you can spend the rest of your life falling in love with Jesus and, and walking with Him and building your life around Him and hearing from God, from His Word. So, I want to walk through this card uh, because this, this helps explain how we, how we um, study the Bible, how we understand the Bible, how we, and how we want to communicate it. Because we want to teach the Bible in such a way that would help you learn how to study the Bible on your own. So, looking at this card, you notice a couple things. The numbers and the arrows. Um, the numbers and the arrows. There's a sequential order to this. And also notice the, the dotted line that you can pass through and the solid line that you can't. Because we don't want to jump, we don't want to just jump, when we read this thing, we can't just jump to contemporary audience. We've got to allow this process to work. So, the way we start, we start with this question, what is the author intended here? What's the author's intended meaning? And in, in order to do that, we, we look at some of the historical background, and we, we read the literary context, and we understand, okay, what, what kind of genre is this? Is this poetry? Is this narrative? Is this... Is this letter? And that helps us give us a clue as to what the author intended when he or she wrote the Bible to their audience. Okay, what's the author's intended meaning? And from that we go up and we ask the question, okay, so that's what they meant to them. How does that, what's the principle that applies to all people? What's the timeless principle here? And from that we, we can move down into, okay, now that we know that, how does this apply to us? And, and we, we, want to imply, we want to apply the Bible not just to me in my life, but to how I live this out in community, because the Bible is just written to a people in community. So we ask questions like, you know, what are the implications of this in my life? And God, what, what's, what do you want to say to me through this? Because God can have some very specific things to say to you through His Word, if you're listening. So this is our process. This is what we want you to learn. And again, the best, I'd love for you to keep this with you, keep this in your Bible. Every time you sit down to read it, pull this out, just to remind you that, that I have to walk through a process here. I can't just open it up. I can't just open it up and be like, Jesus, Jesus said to go get a donkey. 
Hmm. Is he saying I've been an ass lately? I have been kind of mean to my roommate. No, like that's not... To, anytime you want to figure out what the Bible means, don't ever do this. What does this mean? I don't. Let me think about that. No, usually because when you're looking up, you're not looking at the text, so you have no idea what it means. You're looking up into space, and you're using your mind to figure out something that you can't, that needs to be revealed to you. And so, there is a process. I'd love for you to, to hold on to this and to work through this. But the best question you can ask when you stand and read is, Okay, what's the author's intended meaning? Which is a great question to kind of lead into this next section I want to, this next question I want to answer. Which is, um, what is the purpose of Genesis? What's the purpose of Genesis? So I want to start with who wrote it. Um, you notice from the very beginning in Genesis 1, 1, there's no introduction. There's no author introducing himself. In fact, the, the Genesis has no self-identifying author. And the rest of the Bible Nowhere else in the Bible does it say who wrote Genesis. But, what we believe is passed down and, and for generations, and this, is, this has been assumed, and there's some evidence of this, that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, or some people call it the Torah. But the first five books, we believe Moses wrote those. And we know that Jesus quoted Moses 17 times. He'll say things like, if you only believed what Moses said, and he would quote. So 17 times Jesus quotes Moses, but, but Jesus never quotes Moses and then quotes something in Genesis. Okay, so that's what makes it a little tricky. But Jesus quotes Genesis three times. Um, it says, here's the three examples, and they're all found in the first Nine chapters-ish, or six chapters, really. Um, the two will become one flesh. That's a, a quote that Jesus makes. He talks about they will make them male and feeble. Actually, that's four, I just realized. He says in Mark 10 that, that they will make them male and female. That's, that's Genesis 1. He says in the same chapter, the two will become one flesh. I believe that's Genesis 2. Um, he talks about killing Abel. That's Genesis 4, and then he talks about, uh, refers to the days of Noah and the flood, and that's Genesis 6 through 9. So, four different times Jesus quotes Genesis. So, we know that Jesus believed that Genesis was Scripture. And why, why, why does it matter what Jesus believed? Well, uh, he predicted, and he predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and then he did it, and he pulled it off. And so, we kind of just go, oh, we'll just, we'll go with whatever you believe, because you are God. So, We'll do that. So he, Jesus believed Genesis was Scripture. That's a, that's a key thing you need to know. Um, here's one little side issue when it comes to authors of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. There's a couple examples of this. We don't know if Moses sat down with a feather, or whatever they wrote with, 3,500 3, 3, years ago, and, and you know, wrote every single word in the first five books. Um, so that's an option. The other option is he wrote the majority of it and then other people um, finished certain things or compiled certain things and he was, he was given credit to it. Or if there were a few authors and then Moses contributed as well but became kind of the master editor and therefore got credit for it. We know this kind of happens in the book of Chronicles. 
Um, there's, there's evidence of there being multiple authors, but yet there is kind of, it's kind of referred to as one, and he's known as the chronicler. Um, so anyway, we know this is, this is possible, but because of tradition, we believe Moses wrote it. Who is he writing to? Another interesting notice, thing you'll notice at the beginning, it, like Genesis doesn't tell us what Genesis is about. It just says, in the beginning, God. It just starts there. It doesn't say, dear so-and-so, I'm writing you to you. Like Paul starts in his letters, I'm writing to the church in Philippi, the saints in Thessalonica. No, there's no introduction here, which is fascinating. It's kind of interesting. We believe that uh, he's writing to the Israelite people, and we believe that because of of the things that are talked about in it's the, the, the history of Jewish people that's going on in Genesis. So we, we believe that he is writing to the Israelite people. So why doesn't he say that? Why doesn't he tell us who he's writing to? Um, sociologists have this phrase, it might even be on the board, a high-context society. High-context society, what does that mean? Actually, you guys know very well what that means. Because I hear it happening all the time. You use words that I don't understand, and you guys all understand. In fact, um, Jared and Connor, where's Connor Wilson? Every time these two are together, they quote these things called vines. Have you seen it? Yeah. And they just start, they use these weird voices, and they say these weird things that make no sense to me, but they are laughing hysterically, and I'm just going, eh, like an idiot. So I asked Jared, I said, hey, so send me some memes of some vines that, like, you guys would all understand, but I won't understand. And he did. And, I, and he's right. So go, show, show the first one. That makes no sense to me. What, what is that word? Harambe? Harambe. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't even... I don't even care because it makes no sense to me. So that's the worst one of all of them, by the way. What's the next one? That, I said, I, asked, I literally said, is that SpongeBob? Is that SpongeBob? Is it SpongeBob? It is? It was. Yeah, he did. He just said, oh, Scott. Um, so I have no idea what that means. And then the next one actually kind of makes sense to me. So I get, I get the face. I don't understand. Is that a video? Okay. I don't know what's said in that video. I have no idea. So like that's, that's called like because you guys all get it. It'd be like if you sent one of those to a friend and then you spent the next like three paragraphs explaining what everything's happening. Your friend's like, uh, duh, you don't have to explain it to me. I get it. That's, that's kind of what's happening here. Like Moses writes to these people and they... They understand their, their culture very well, their language very well, their history very well. They, under, they all understand their own circumstances very well. So he doesn't need to like explain why he's doing what he's doing. They get it. They're all on the same page. So that is most likely what's happening there. America actually is, a very, is becoming more and more of a low-context society in that the more experiences, the more cultures, the more diversity that takes place, the, the more explanation and context that needs to happen when we say certain things, when we do certain things. And so you, you guys also know that well as well. As, as well. But 
So now we get to the purpose. What's the purpose of, of Genesis? So first one is, is it, is it biographical? Is, is Genesis giving us a, a biographical instructions of what took place? Is it, um, I, I guess, you know, some, maybe a casual reader of Genesis, I, I would probably argue a lazy reader of Genesis might look at that and go, yeah, it's kind of describing the, the origin of, of humans, I mean, and, and of all creation. And so I could see that. Maybe it's biographical. Um, but if you pay a little attention to the way it's structured, uh, you'll start to notice that there's way, just way too many gaps. Um, there's way too many gaps that aren't explained, that, that are left out, that, that don't make sense, um, that would kind of lead me to believe it's not biographical in its purpose. Okay, so that one we cross out. What about... What about moralistic lessons? Is it just a bunch of moralistic lessons? This is actually a fairly popular way um, to understand the Bible. And, and maybe, maybe a lot of you grew up in churches that um, taught the Bible in a way that like, always had a, a moral lesson. And every character was kind of a hero. Um, that Somebody we should emulate. Somebody we should be like. Somebody we should you know, have faith like. Have faith like Abraham. Or you know, um, be committed and trustful like like Joseph, or be willing to fight, you know, to, to, to fight your battles like David. And, and so it's kind of sometimes easy to, to see it that way, but, um, but the reality is, again, if you pay attention to what's happening, um, story after story, narrative after narrative, it kind of falls short. It, it kind of fails to say, and this is the moral lesson. It never actually says that. It actually never gives you this conclusion like, oh, that's what I need to learn from this. I need to be kinder to my neighbor. I need to, whatever, not accuse, not call my wife my sister. I mean, whatever, which actually happens in Genesis a couple times. And so frequently the, the text um, stops short of, of like giving the reader the moral lesson. So we can conclude it's probably not moralistic. What about just history? This one's actually this one's getting a little closer. Is it is it just historical in, in nature? I mean, especially if you focus on the first eleven chapters, which we'll get into in the coming weeks, um, and you, you see this list of names, and you just go, okay, maybe it's just given it's giving me this long history of of mankind, and and that's what this is. But again, if you look at like all fifty chapters, it seems to focus in on like one family. And, and one lineage. In fact, this is kind of interesting. We believe, based on the timeline, that from when God made a covenant with Adam to when God made a covenant with Noah is roughly 2,000 years. Okay? So think about that. First six chapters of the Bible, 2,000 years of history. Think he left some things out? I think he did. Um, He's a very terrible historical author if, if he did, not Moses, God, actually. It would be terrible in his historical abilities if he left, like he covered 2,000 years in six, in six chapters. And it gets worse, from Noah to Abraham. So Noah is like six, chapters 6 through 9, and Abraham starts in chapters 12. So really in three chapters he covers another 2,000 years. So you have 4,000 years from Genesis 1 to Genesis 12. And then you have another 2,000 years from, Gen from Genesis 12 to Revelation. So, 
Covers a lot of history there. It focuses in a lot there. So what's happening there? Actually, a really big clue of this is when you look at Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1. Because it starts with Joseph, and it works back to David, and it works back to Abraham, and it works back to Noah. And so what you see happening here is God isn't just telling the history of all mankind. God is telling a very specific lineage that points all the way to Jesus for a very specific purpose. So so we, we can't say that this is the Bible of Genesis is historical in its purpose, but but what we can say is that it is covenantal history. This very specific kind of history called covenantal history. And what is covenantal history? And that is something that I'm not going to tell you about. Drew will. So we're going to take a little break. And then uh, we'll come back here in a second. So if you need to use the restroom, there's, there's one in there. And, uh, and we'll take a few minutes and then we'll come back. All right. So uh, I'm going to start my lesson with a quick announcement slash, uh, slash question. And that is, is... Anybody seen a piece of paper that say introduction to Genesis on them? Uh, anywhere around? Because uh, I hope not in the trash can. If somebody happens to see those, pass those on up. Because, hey, all right. We are going to have a lesson tonight. Sweet. All right. Go ahead. Look, it's starting off, starting off good. All right. Um, second thing, I will just say this. Uh, this week, so every now and then we have tailgates at the table whenever there's a home game and we'll have food here and all that stuff. This week is not one of those weeks. So uh, on other nights what we do is actually we'll park cars here to help raise money for the ministry or help raise money for missions trips that we have coming up or something like that. And so just so you know, this week um, we'll have the parking lot all closed down unless you want to come pay 20 bucks to, to park here, which you're welcome to do that. Uh, but but we're, we leave it there to charge people as they come in so we can raise money for the ministry. So just a heads up so you don't find yourself stuck here or something like that. All right, so Scott uh, left us with this question. When we say Genesis is not history, it's not biography, it's not um, a series of kind of moral lesson, lessons or truisms, it's not Aesop's fables, anything like that. What it is is covenantal history, which is really sweet for him to let us know that, but that really doesn't help us if we don't know what covenantal history is. Uh, So what is covenantal history? What do we mean when we say that this is what Genesis is, that that's what its purpose is? Um, First, we start with this. What is a covenant? A covenant is a, um, if I'm I'm boiling it down super simple, a relationship or partnership um, that is built on promises and commitments. So, not just a contract. A contract doesn't really imply relationship. Um, a covenant is something where, where two people are entering into an agreement, but there's a relationship involved in that. There's a friendship involved in that, and, and it involves promises and commitments. So, in the Bible, call, uh, God calls people um, at different times, in different places, into covenant with Him. And sometimes He calls an individual into a covenant with Him. And sometimes he'll call a group as a whole into a covenant. And there's at least one place, you could maybe say one and a half, depending on how you define this one section of Scripture, where he calls all of humanity kind of into to a covenant 
with him. And that covenant is almost always made up of promises and commitments. So in that covenant, God makes promises to these people and says, this is what I will do for you. This is how this is going to work for you. But then he also asks for commitments and says, and this is what I, I ask in return from you. So he'll come and he'll say, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give blessing to you and your family, but I'm asking from you this. Do you trust me? My commitment I'm asking for you is, will you trust me? Will you trust me enough to follow me where I say to go? Or there's another time where he may say, he may come to somebody and say, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you Israel as a whole people group. You are going to be my treasured possession. You are going to be my people and I am going to be your God and I'm going to care for you and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to keep you and all of those things. But on, the, uh, on your side, I'm asking for this commitment and that is that you will keep this law that I'm going to hand to you through my servant Moses. And so covenants come with promises from God and commitments that are expected from those who are entering into that covenant. Um, So as a covenantal history, what Genesis is doing and what the Old Testament actually in general is doing, it is built around describing these covenants. It's built around describing what caused them to take place and how they're playing out, who it is that is entering into covenant with God and how they are um, honoring or failing in their commitment and how God is always honoring and true in His, in His promises. And those covenants reveal truths about God's character, about who He is as we get to watch Him live out this covenant commitment or this covenant promise that He has made with people. So um, the question then is, how does this covenantal history play out in Genesis? What does it look like when it does this? What, what I want to do for you for just a moment is kind of give you um, like a, a view of Genesis from 10,000 feet. We're just going to fly over real quick, and I want to give you kind of a lay of the land. I want to give you, uh, if you will, just kind of a map of what Genesis looks like so that as we're walking through it this year, you'll know where you are on the map. You'll know um, where we're at and where you're going. I also want to kind of make you aware of some pitfalls, some, some road hazards that a person can fall into when they're studying the book of Genesis and how we can avoid it, some ways to avoid reading it. So it's generally agreed upon that the book of Genesis um, is broken into these two lopsided sections. So it's broken into two clear and distinct sections, only one of them has a whole lot more content in it than the other. And the first one is Genesis 1 through 11. Um, And Genesis 1 through 11 is kind of big picture, um, letting us see things, um, the very beginning of of the world and all of those things and how the world kind of comes to be, how humanity kind of comes to be and some of those big things. And then once we get into the rest of it, which is Genesis 12 through 50, it begins to zero in on this one man and his family and his descendants. And so that's where you see you have big picture and then you have zeroed in and and kind of dialed in from here on out. Now, what we're going to do this year is actually we're going to divide those two components into two other components. And it will go something like this. Um, We're calling the first part Genesis uh, we're going to break that into chapter 1, verse 1, through 4, 26. I think I've got PowerPoint of this. Yep. Do I have that? Sweet. All right. There it is. 
chapter 1, verse 1 through 426, we're calling this creation, humanity, and sin. So in this section of Scripture, the stage gets set for us. This is where we get to see our first glimpses of who this God is that Genesis is going to be telling us about and what He's done. This is where we're going to get an idea of um, what humanity is and, and what the purpose of humanity is, why we exist. Now, I'm just going to jump ahead a couple weeks and tell you a little bit, give you some hints as to why humanity exists. According to Genesis 1 and 2, humanity basically exists for this, to glorify God through entering into a partnership with Him and enjoying that relationship with Him. So, I, so this is kind of a, a crazy thing. And again, I, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Um, God, when He creates humanity, um, doesn't just stand over it, although He does stand over all humanity. He then also comes and says, I want you to come work alongside me. And He says, I want you to help me care for all of this that we just made here. We're going we're gonna to do this together. And He calls human beings into partnership with Him. And they're made to be able to glorify Him by this partnership in which they know God and they enjoy Him and they work alongside of Him. But obviously, that's not what it looks like today. That's not how it works. And so, this section also tells us where we went wrong. And that is, it describes the fall. So, we get into these stories of creation and Adam and Eve and the fall. And then we start to see how that goes out into Cain and Abel. And then we move into this next section. So, the first one is creation, humanity, and sin. This next part starts in 5.1 and goes to chapter 11, verse 26. And what we begin to see in this section is what the results of the fall actually are. How the sin that Adam and Eve bring into the world begins to then infect the rest of the world and then begins to have an impact on everything else around it. Individuals, families, nations, societies, and the created order as it is begins to be affected by those things. And what you'll begin to see is that things continually go in these chapters 5 through 11 from bad to worse as the world spirals out of control. To this point that it says in Genesis 9 that God looks down and He sees that every inclination of man's heart was only wicked all the time. And so we call this section the need for covenant people. God looks and goes, something needs to be done. Something needs to be made right. I'm going to enact a plan whereby we will begin to fix those things. What we see in this, actually, and this is, this is a crazy concept. I just started thinking about this this week, and I, I don't know fully. It's somewhat speculative. By the time you get to the end of 1126, it could be said that there are, that you could count the number of people on one. I'm not talking about Noah. I'm talking, so Noah goes and his generation goes on, and the world is full of people again. And it could be said that there is, like, uh, you could count on one hand the amount of people who actually know who God is at this point. And by the way, I wouldn't call Abraham one of them. We always had this idea that Abraham, the reason God picks Abraham is because he's a great guy and a good, like, you know, like he grew up going to church and Sunday school all his life and, you know, that, that kid, so he knows all his Bible facts and so God's like, that's the dude I'm going with. Actually, near as we can tell, Abram is one of the many idol-worshipping pagans on earth at that time and God just shows up to him because God chooses to, to be gracious to him. There's only actually one name I know of in Scripture that maybe actually even knows who Yahweh God is by the time you get to the end of Genesis 11. And we may maybe 
be able to get to that later. But the earth has come to a point where they were made to know God and to enjoy Him as they work in partnership with Him, and nobody knows Him. And so that's where this next section comes in. And, and there are some people, specifically those of you familiar with the Bible Project, Tim Mackey is kind of there. And what Tim Mackey will tell you is when you come to this, he would actually put this first little section of 12, which starts actually in 1127. And it goes on through, what do I got, 3643. He would actually say that there's this little section at the beginning that actually goes right here. And it's Genesis 12, 1 through 3. There are a number of people who say Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is the link that binds these two together. Because this is the point where God takes what has happened over here, what He intended, and then the, the calamity that came out of man's choices, and He begins the plan to enact something different. And so this third section we call the establishment of a covenant people. Here is God, where God um, brings in through Abram a new covenant, a new people. And it is through Abram and his family in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, um, he says this, that God is going to bless the whole world. He says, I'm going to bless you, and then through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. How is he going to do that? He's going to bless the world by first and foremost making himself known. Nobody knows him at this point. Nobody knows who the true and living God is who made all these things. And He's going to do this through Abraham and his family. It is from this one man and his descendants that we know what we know about God. As we get to watch God interact with this people group, Abram and his descendants and his family, we get to learn of who He is. And it's from that people group that our scriptures come. And more importantly, as Scott referenced earlier, um, the truest revelation of God comes from this people group when 2,000 years later, Jesus Himself is born into them. And so this covenant is about, okay, catch this, this covenant is about self-revelation. This covenant is God's way of letting humanity who were created to know Him, this covenant is about letting Him know Him again. Seeing who He is. Um, and so He'll make these people not just to say them. I think most people think in the Old Testament God's people were Israel. And in the New Testament, God's people are like Christians in the church. And so in the New Testament, these are all the people who are saved. God's people, the Christians. And in the Old Testament, all the people who were saved were Israel, because that was God's people. That's, that's not actually the case. The Bible doesn't teach that if you were a Jew, if you were an Israelite, you were saved. That wasn't the point of being God's people. The point of being God's people was to bless the whole world. The, the reason God called the Israelites was not so all of them could be saved, though they could if they sought after Him. The reason He called Israel was that through His relationship with Him, He was going to reveal Himself to the rest of the world. He was going after the whole world through them. So the main purpose of this covenant is a revelation of who God is, the establishment of the covenant people. And then we come to um, this last section, which is 37.1 through the end of the book. 50, I think the last verse is 26. We're going to call this the incubation of the covenant people. And we're calling it the incubation because what happens is when this section starts... All God's people are this little family. I say little. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a good amount of them. But there's a family, and they go down into Egypt, 
And when they come out of it on the other side of Genesis right here, they are a nation. Like an entire nation is born out of this. And so God's covenant people go from this little family to this nation by the time they leave. And so we're calling this this incubation period. Now this one is a little bit interesting because of some stuff that happens in here. Um, The person who gets the most airtime in Genesis... The human who gets the most airtime in Genesis is Abraham, obviously, because it is he's the one this, this covenant gets made with. It's his family that we're going to follow through the rest of the way. But then, um, second to Abraham, the person who gets the most airtime, anybody take a guess? Joseph. Joseph gets more airtime than anybody else. Um, even though whenever, like the, even... Whenever the Bible references back to the patriarchs, the early fathers, they always say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is where we start. But Joseph gets so much time spent on him. And and we have to ask the question, why? Why why does so much of this book get devoted to Joseph's story? And here's an even weirder question. Why, smack dab in the middle of it, does the Bible or does the writer interrupt the Joseph story to tell a story about Judah, his brother, and Tamar? So Judah, who ends up having a sexual relationship with his daughter-in-law, but doesn't know that it's his daughter-in-law when it happens. Why, first of all, why include that at all? Okay, that's just weird. And then why interrupt right in the middle of the Joseph story with that? And we've got to ask those kinds of questions when we read through Genesis and, and how does that explain the covenant to us. So this is a lay of the land um, as, we, as we read through these. And, and hopefully as you're reading, you'll be able to see. So what's happening here? What is, what is going on? How is this playing into the bigger picture? Are we looking at the creation? Are we, is this revealing a need for the covenant people or an establishment or an incubation of it as we're reading through these things? Let me finish here with just a few little things. Three ways not to read Genesis. All right, How to not read Genesis if you want to be able to understand it and get it right. First, number one is this. Um, expect it to answer 21st century questions. Expect it. Go to Genesis and go, man, I've got these questions that have come up in my, uh, in my biology class. Man, I've got these questions that have come up in my geography class. And, and I'm really trying to sort through this. So I'm going to open up Genesis and see what it says. You need to know this. The writer of Genesis wasn't writing to answer your questions that you were going to have in 2018. It didn't sit down and go, I wonder what they're going to be asking. I wonder what some OSU sophomore is going to be asking in the year 2018. Let me make sure I can kind of fill them in on some things, right? It's, that's not what, it's not what he's doing. And, and this becomes really huge. A lot of people want to go to Genesis to get answers on, well, is it old earth or is it young earth? Has the earth been in existence for millions of years or for thousands of years? Or they want to go to Genesis and ask, well, was it a literal seven-day creation? Or or is it something more like theistic evolution where God was using these little things? We're going to talk about creation next week. That's what we're jumping into. But I'm just going to tell you, if what you think is you're going to get uh, answers to the, the kinds of questions that scientists are asking in the 21st century, that's not why this book was written. And you're going to be a little bit disappointed. This is written for an ancient audience, none of whom are asking these kinds of questions at the time. And when we try to make Genesis answer the kinds of questions that we want to know today, right now, um, then, uh, then we end up causing battles that we shouldn't. We end up getting frustrated. We end up sometimes making things look foolish. Uh, kind of the most, the most famous example of this is Galileo. 
when he, he kind of starts coming to conclusions that actually the universe or, or our galaxy is orbiting the sun, that the earth is orbiting around the sun and not the other way around, that it's not geocentric, it's heliocentric, and the Catholic Church comes down hard on him because the Catholic Church believes that the, the Bible teaches that actually the sun revolves around the earth because after all, it says in there, in, in the Bible, that the sun sets. It says in there that the sun rises. It says that on one day the sun stood still in the sky. And if the sun stands still in the sky, then that means that obviously that it's the sun that's doing the moving. And so the Catholic Church came down hard on Galileo for that and made him recant those things. And now, of course, um, they look kind of foolish. And, and the reason why is because they were, they were trying to bend and shape the Bible into saying things that it wasn't meant to say, that it wasn't even ever trying to say. Um, and, and because they were trying to make it answer their own questions that it wasn't trying to answer in the time. Um, number two, here's another way to misread Genesis. You can misread it by ignoring the cultural context and genre. This is a very similar idea to what we just described. Do not assume that the ancient writers and the person writing Genesis writes in the same way that we do writes with the same kind of ideas and thoughts behind as we do. Here's an example. One of the things you're going to find in the book of Genesis, as Scott hit on it, is these lists of genealogies. Um, they'll call them like the generations of Adam, or the generations of Noah, or the generations of Shem. I think it happens 13 times. And a lot of people think that Genesis, the writer's actually marking something. He's giving us some sort of hints by kind of where these things fall and, and that we're moving into a new section whenever he comes to those things. Um, now, when we see a genealogy, when we read a genealogy, um, they are meant today to help us identify a line of descent in sequential order, right? So this is what a genealogy is for. It's for me to know who my dad was and who his dad was and who his dad was and who his dad was. And obviously, we're going to put all of these things in sequential order so we can get a real good grasp on that. That's, just, just so you know, that's not what they were doing with genealogies back then. That's not what they cared about. That's not what they were aiming at. And so if you read the genealogies in Genesis like it's a, um, like it's a genealogy that you and I would write today or read today, you're going to miss something. You're going to get something off there. You're going to begin to misunderstand some things. Sequential order was not a big concern for them. It wasn't so important that you get them all in exactly the right order. Um, actually, there's some evidence that they that they're using ages and years differently than we use ages and years differently when they're doing genealogy stuff, which, which affects some things when they do that. Don't hear me saying when I say they don't care about order. Are you saying that the Bible's wrong, that they're just putting the wrong order in there? No, no, no. Don't hear me saying that. Hear me saying you cannot try to force what you want it to say onto it. In the same way that if you said, hey man, I watched the sunset tonight, it was beautiful, I wouldn't go, no dummy, the sun doesn't set. Don't you know anything? Actually what's happening is the earth is rotating, and as it does it, it appears that the sun is going down, but that's not what's really happening. You go, whoa, 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 chill. You know what I mean, right? And I go, yeah, I know what you mean. Because we have a way of talking about these things that's just kind of understood. When we say sunrise, we don't really mean the sun is rising in the sky. We all know that. And when they do genealogies back then in the way that they're writing them, or when they're writing different years and age periods, they might not mean exactly what you and I mean. They might mean something different. 
And so it's important for us to be able to get a grasp on that and to pay attention to the genre. So I know that there's a professor at OSU who likes to take Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2 and show how there's this contradiction between like the first few verses of Genesis 2 and, and then Genesis 1 and show how, look, look at, look at the problems. In the first couple chapters of the Bible, you already see problems. No, no, no. That comes from an ignorance about how the genre of Genesis is being played out in that area, about how the writer is actually writing those things. And so when we ignore things like the style of writing, the genre that the, that the writer is using, or the cultural background, that's when people can start to take shots at the Bible because they don't understand what it's doing. And it's important for us to be able to get a grasp on that and see it as the, fir- or as the original audience would have seen it. Um, number three, here's, here's a way to, to um, not read Genesis, and that is to focus on the heroes of the faith. We, we talk about these, the, the heroes of the faith, those, those people in Scripture, and Scott already kind of touched on this, those people in Scripture who live the faithful life following God, so we can read their story and we can learn from them how, how we ought to follow God, how we can be um, faithful like Noah, even when all, around, all the people around us aren't faithful, even when the, the world is wicked around us, how we can be trusting like Abraham, even when we don't know the way, but we're going to trust God to show us the way and those things. And, and we kind of mentioned this a couple weeks ago, that's not what the Bible is meant to do for us. It's not meant to give us lessons or life principles. It's not trying to hold up these people as the, the model for what you're supposed to do or how you're supposed to live. One of the most helpful truths I've ever heard in how to study the Bible. It was also also given to me by that loud, obnoxious Canadian that Scott mentioned earlier in my interp class. This is one of the most helpful little nuggets of information I can give you to help you interpret the Old Testament. It's this. God is the hero of the Old Testament. God is the hero of the Old Testament. And, and actually, you can say that too for the New Testament. God is the hero of the New Testament. It's just that the Old Testament gets us so turned around because there's so many stories of these heroic people that it's easy for us to focus on them, but the stories aren't telling us about them. When you read the story, if you can keep this in mind, God is the hero here, and so what is this story telling me about the hero? Then you're getting a lot closer to what Genesis wants to tell you. Then you're getting a lot closer to the truth at the core of this, that this is meant to reveal who this God is and what he was like. Um, When the book was of Genesis was written, the universal tendency was for people, individuals and people groups and family groups to fabricate gods that were big and powerful, but not too big and powerful. Like, like just big enough to do stuff for me, but just small enough that I could manipulate them or that I might be able to have influence on them to kind of get them to affect my life in a good way. And so, either through the mythologies that were kind of developed during that time, or through tradition that was passed down, or maybe somebody just making stuff up, the kind of gods they believed in were big, yet not super big. They were these kind of gods that that were sort of like me, just a little bit more powerful. They had the same kind of needs and desires and wants that that I have, and if I can just appeal to those, then, then I can get those gods to bless me. And so John Walton, he's this... Uh, Old Testament scholar that we'll be using a lot as we kind of walk through these things. John Walton says um, that the writing of the book of Genesis was revolutionary because in the middle of a world like this, it entered in and said, the true God is nothing like what you've always been told. 
the true God is not a God that you can manipulate or influence to get what you want from Him. He's so much greater than that. He's so much bigger than that. But He's also good. He's also good. And so Genesis was revolutionary when it came into the world to say, first of all, just this fact, that there's only one God. That would have been mind-blowing. Okay? Um, the question was never, does God exist or not? It's, um, how many are there and what are they like? Genesis says one and let me tell you. I'll tell you what he's like. Now, here's kind of the thing. We, we as human beings, we haven't really grown out of this whole thing of um, fabricating gods that we can manipulate and control to get what we want. We still do that today. We might not make like little graven images, little wood or stone idols to kind of get what we want out of God's, but, but through our spirituality or through our good deeds, or even there are a lot of people who kind of like consider themselves Christian who have made God something small, that, that God exists to bless me, that God exists to bless America, that God exists to kind of make sure that my life goes smoothly and that nobody that I love gets sick and everything kind of works out the way I want. And in that sense, when you read Genesis and you read it rightly, it still has the ability to be revolutionary. It still has the ability to open your eyes to what the true God is really like. And that's what we want for, um, not just you, that's what we want for us this semester and this year. That as we read through this book, and as we look at a God who enters into covenant with human beings, that we will see what the true and actual God is really like. That we will learn who the real hero of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the rest of human history really is, and how we can know Him, and enjoy Him, and enter into partnership with Him. That's what we want as we explore this book together uh, this year. Let me pray as we close, and then we'll move into one last thing, All right, God, we do want to know You. We want to know You through Your Word. So our prayer is, as we jump into this book this year, that you would give us a bigger picture of you. That you would open our eyes to see how great you are. That you would cause us to want to worship you more. That you would cause us to want to love you more. That you would cause us to want to obey you more as we see you in your word. We ask you that in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright. Um, so now what's, what's going to happen as, as Rachel mentioned, we're going to take a little like five minutes or 15. something. Okay, 15. Alright, sweet. Um, so in 15 minutes, we're going to have table group signups in here. So for those of you who are like, I don't know if I want to do that, but it's going to be awkward. Now's your chance to sneak out. Um, we're going to give you like 15 minutes to kind of just hang out and stuff like that. But for those of you who are interested in getting involved in a small group, it like staying around does not sign your name in blood. This is just a chance for you to hear what these table groups are and when they're happening. So if you're interested in learning about that and possibly signing up, in 15 minutes we'll do that right in here. Anything else they need to know about getting ourselves ready for that? Or? Uh, we'll pass stuff out. Okay, sweet. We'll